This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What Jesus does for us in his death and resurrection is lift us up out of the sin and misery into which Adam placed us and confirm us in fellowship with God. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal, and we have a great opportunity today to talk to a friend. Uh, Carlton Wynn is Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also a speaker at the upcoming Quakertown Conference on Reformed Theology, one of our alliance conferences. That's on November 9th and 10th. And if you stay tuned to the end of the podcast, we'll give one of you an opportunity to earn free admission to the Quakertown Conference. And Carlton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with a really broad question, Carlton. I want to take the title of your upcoming address and and put it to you as a question and ask for the kind of summary version. How does the historical Adam magnify the cross of Christ? Well, the historical Adam magnifies the cross of Christ primarily in being the man and means by which sin came into the world, and the cross of Christ is the preeminent dealing with sin by our gracious God. So broadly speaking, Adam is necessary if the cross of Christ is to have any meaning whatsoever. So let me just put a little finer point on that because you say the historical Adam, and and so what you're arguing, among other things, it sounds like is, Adam had to be a real historical man in order for us to make sense of what the scriptures teach us about the cross of Jesus Christ? That's absolutely right. Uh, Not only Adam, but an originally sinless creation in which Adam was placed and into which Adam plunged himself and all things into sin and misery is the presupposition, the precondition. It's the context in which the incarnation and the atonement take place. What Jesus does for us in his death and resurrection is lift us up out of the sin and misery into which Adam placed us and confirm us in fellowship with God. That that glorious reward that Adam could have enjoyed had he obeyed God and submitted to his word. Carlton, Jonathan picked up on your subtitle, how the historical Adam magnifies the cross of Christ. I wonder if I can turn some attention to your main title, the old man crucified. You're taking your language from Romans six and similar passages. What does the historical Adam, the the first man, the one into whom God breathed the breath of life, having fashioned him from the dust of the ground. What does this man, this historical man have to do with the old man that characterizes each one of us outside of Christ? Yeah, I I appreciate that question, James, because this is actually what I'm most excited about in this uh, message I'm going to give, focusing on Paul's language of the old man being crucified with Christ. You're absolutely right that the language comes from Romans 6, particularly verse 6, as well as some other places in Scripture. And um, maybe it's helpful to put it this way. Traditionally, or at least oftentimes, uh, people think of Paul's language about the old man in this way. I'm a Christian, but before I became a Christian, before I was converted, I had an old self. 
And now that I've become a Christian, I am a new man or a new self. Uh, perhaps some Christians would think that when I become a Christian, there's sort of a, a central change to my old self, but that old self still lingers and I still need to deal with the old self. I still need to fight the old self and uh, continually progress in my identity as a new self. Now, to be sure, Paul will talk about our conversion to Christ as a putting off of what he calls the old man and a putting on of the new man. And he will also encourage Christians to continually put to death what belongs to the old man and put on what belongs to the new man. He does this in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians 3, 9 and 10, among other places. But but these descriptions of the old and new man are all centered on my own conversion, my own identity. And I believe that in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul actually points us to a deeper conception of the old man. The old man, in Paul's theology, refers most basically to the entire world of sin introduced by the historical Adam. It refers to the entire realm of sin and decay and futility that characterizes the present evil age. And so in Romans 6, 6, when he says that we know that our old man was crucified with Christ, Paul does not have in view first our conversion. He has in view first Calvary, the, the redemptive work of Christ 2,000 years ago. He's saying that when Christ died, he defeated the realm of sin introduced by the historical Adam. So the title is trying to pick up on the importance of Adam, but particularly the importance of Adam as he's introduced this entire realm of sin that has been defeated at the cross. I know why you're making that connection, especially in Romans 6, because of the immediate foregrounding of all that in the second half of Romans 5, where Paul isn't just leaving it to us to sort of go out there and connect the dots to the first man, Adam, but in fact, he's made that connection explicit, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, so that the historic Adam is is not brought by us into the context, but by Paul himself. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit on how it is that the historic Adam's sin becomes my problem. And what I'm probing for here a little bit is maybe a few remarks with regard to, for a technical term, federal solidarity. How is it that there has to be a first man both to create the kind of problem from which I need salvation, and how does that illumine and shed light on the second man, uh, the last Adam? Yeah, I, I appreciate how you pointed out Romans chapter 5, because it's right there that Paul uh, articulates this, this solidaric relationship, what, what we might call a covenantal union between Adam and all of the people that he represented, namely the, the entire human race, and uh, Christ and all the people that he represented in his obedient life, death, and resurrection, namely the elect. So right there in Romans 5, Paul is drawing a connection between the sin of Adam and the sin of all men in his one sin. He's drawing a connection between the condemnation of Adam 
as he has uh, incurred guilt and liability of punishment and the liability of punishment and guilt that that obtain for all of us from the moment of our conception. And he's drawing a connection between the death of Adam, the curse of God that was leveled against Adam in his sin, and the curse that, that rests upon all of us by virtue of our covenant union with Adam. And, and this entire connection between the one and the many, between, between the first man and all those whom he represents, is the framework in terms of which he talks about the work of Christ and its effects in time for all those who would come to believe on Christ. This framework is carried on in Romans chapter 6, only it's carried on there not in terms of our guilt and the forgiveness and imputed righteousness that we see in Christ and our justification, but in Romans 6, it's described in terms of our enslavement to sin. That when we are born, we, we come into the world enslaved as citizens to this dominion of sin inaugurated by Adam. And it's, it's at Calvary in history that Christ defeats this body of sin, this realm of sin, as verse 6 puts it, so that when we hear the gospel, when we are born in the 20th, 21st century, and we hear the gospel, and we are uh, made alive in Christ by the Spirit and exercise faith and are united to him personally, uh, we experience the outworking of Christ's defeat of sin at Calvary. So that what is true of us is that we no longer are citizens of sin and the slaves of sin, but we now have a new master. One of our forefathers in the faith, John Murray, uh, called this switch in our life experience, definitive sanctification. We, we've experienced a, a definitive breach with the dominion of sin by virtue of our union with Christ. And that breach is itself rooted in something that Christ has done in redemptive history. Is a historical Adam as significant to the gospel message and our understanding of it as the historical Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, not only in Romans 5 with respect to our justification, Romans 6, where I'm focusing with respect to our sanctification, but in terms of everything we receive in Christ, it's an advancement of what was offered to the historical Adam. And it is a, a redemptive liberation from all that fallen Adam has introduced. And uh, so without Adam, the gospel crumbles. Um, one of our favorite theologians, I'm sure among all three of us, Dr. Gaffin has written, uh, Richard B. Gaffin Jr. has written a little pamphlet, and he titled it, No Adam, No Gospel. And uh, that's a pithy way of saying something that may be difficult for some Christians to affirm, um, because of the, the secular mind that prevails in our day. But, but if we don't have Adam, we don't have Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that just as we have borne the image of the man of earth, namely Adam, so in Christ we will bear the full image of the resurrected Christ, the man of heaven. If we don't have a historical Adam to whom we are covenantally united by nature, we cannot make sense of Paul's theology 
of uh, the redemption we receive in Christ and the promises of future glory that are ours in him at the resurrection of the dead. Carlton, a lot of your argument has centered around uh, Romans 5 and 6. And I'm wondering, though, because you're talking about the historical Adam and you're talking about the way in which Adam's sin uh, affects all men, where do we see this played out or in what ways do we see this played out even in the early chapters of Genesis after Genesis 3? In, In other words, I guess what I'm saying is, If I were starting in Genesis, what are the indications in that text or what are the the kinds of things that you see in that text that that take you to a a sort of Romans five understanding of Adam's place? Yeah, that's that's helpful, Jonathan. Sometimes people say, well, we're dealing with Paul here. Paul was a man of his time. He's spinning out this Adam Christ parallel in ways that go far beyond what the Old Testament will allow. I don't think that that's the case. If you go back to Genesis 3 and 4 and 5, all the way leading up to the account of the flood and beyond, what we see in the early pages of our Bibles is the inauguration of sin and death in the human race. And that sin and that death snowballs in the opening chapters of Genesis. We see right on the heels of God's uh, removing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, we see both, yes, glimmers of redemptive hope as Eve conceives Cain and eventually Seth, but we also see the snowballing effects of sin. We see it especially in the generations listed there in Genesis 5 when it repeatedly gives um, the accounts of those who followed Adam and Eve, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, The author of Genesis there, Moses, is drilling home for us the terrible effects of Adam's sin, the increasing corruption that is pervading the entire world, until God regrets that he made man, so to speak, and he judges the world in a flood. Uh, Even as he saves Noah, this man of righteousness, pointing, of course, to Jesus Christ. So the stream of redemptive history begins right there in Genesis 3. It's controlled by the sin and fall of Adam and the glorious promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to deal with this catastrophic event through the person and work of Christ. Carlton, last question for you. You mentioned uh, Dick Gaffin's little book on the relationship between Adam and the gospel. But I'm wondering, on this subject of, as James introduced the term federal theology, what books would you recommend, particularly to people who are maybe new to this idea about these very important parallels and and this kind of very important teaching that we receive in Romans 5 and 6? Are are there any particular introductory volumes that you found most helpful? Yeah, uh, Gaffin's little pamphlet is wonderful if you're interested in the way uh, the historical Adam relates to all of redemptive history. Uh, If you want to move up from that, one book that helpfully walks through various views of union with Adam and settles on a covenantal solidarity or union with Adam is John Murray's little book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin. It's very dense, but uh, it's not very long. So that's the good news. (laughs) And, um, And if you want more than Murray, I would encourage people to read the writings of Gerhardus Voss and his biblical theology, uh, you're going to get much more than just the Adam-Christ parallel there. But what you will get is a a broad 
a glorious perspective on how God's creation of Adam and uh, the world was already oriented to an eschatological or an ultimate goal of fellowship with God and how this provides us with the creational context for Christ's coming and his redeeming work. So those are just three that I would recommend if someone's interested in asking the question and answering, how does the whole Bible fit together in a way that Paul is describing here in just these two chapters of Romans? Carlton, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for your ongoing work. We're looking forward to this address at Quakertown. And uh, as you start a new semester, uh, thank you for all that you're doing. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. James, I think Carlton so enthusiastic and, and very clear. I think in, in one sense, he kind of covered it. But I wanted to follow up actually on the question that I asked him, because a lot of times our listeners will ask, will tell me that this question is is helpful one for them. I asked him which books he recommended. I think you would second every one of his recommendations. Would you add to any of those recommendations? Those are the ones that come to my mind first. So, yeah. uh, But uh, I think you get some discussion of this also inside of uh, Herman Ritterboss's book, Paul, An Outline of His Theology. Right, which is a big book. It's a big book. It's a hard book. And this is, I mean, kind of going up the scale from Gaffin's booklet to the dense, though still short book by right. Murray. The argument in, in Ritterboss is going to be equally challenging to what you find in Murray, but maybe some of the ways that he puts it and draws it out and connects it theologically may serve as a good supplement to Murray, mm-hmm. though uh, not to be seen in competition because obviously Gaffin was uh, instrumental in getting that book translated from Dutch to English and available to us back in the 70s. So you're going to find a lot of continuity in those sources. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was trying to think as he was answering, I agree with you, those are, those are the three that jumped into my mind, but there are other books on the historical Adam, but on this... Yeah, no, but on and, the sort of federal books, theology... On the federal connection. I mean, yeah. when I think of older books on federalism, I think of like John Girardeau's book on okay. federal yep. theology, which is a small book, and I can't even be sure that it's still in print, so maybe even by mentioning yeah, it, I'll, I'll frustrate anyone looking for it. <laughs> um, but I think seeing that solidarity, I liked the text that Carlton brought out from 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. just as we have borne the image of the earthy we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that this just as language places a solidarity in our connection to Adam originally and to the second Adam. And in fact, it's the language of second man uh, comes in verse 47 just before that. And I think it really goes to Carlton's point that you can't have an intelligibility with regard to the work of the second man if not read against the backdrop of the first man. Second man means nothing without first man and his place and his and his role. Right. So then one of the things that, for instance, the Murray book tries to do is it tries to say, given that, how is it that we're connected to Adam and then and then to Christ? And of course, federalism is the idea of reckoning. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a judicial regarding of ourselves as if we were Adam committing his sin, incurring his guilt. It's a reckoning of the righteousness of Christ to us, his obedience unto death, the sacrificial value of that death, the power of his life from the grave. All of these things are ours by a reckoning, by a federal union. 
yeah, an incredibly important concept, central really to Paul's doctrine of salvation, particularly in the book of Romans. Well, we want to thank all of you for listening today. Uh, we're grateful, of course, to Carlton for coming on, but we're grateful to you for listening once again. If you'd like the opportunity to go to the Quakertown Conference on Reformed Theology, November 9th and 10th, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a, an opportunity for you to click to enter to win tickets to that event. If you'd just like to sign up and go, you can do that at alliancenet.org. And I think any of the other Alliance websites will have something on there so that you can find out about the upcoming events. But that's November 9th and 10th, Quakertown Conference on Reformed Theology. A lot of different topics, a lot of different speakers. Carlton is one. And as you can tell from our time today, his is a rich topic and an important one for us uh, all to think about more deeply. Thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go. Some of you are donors. Many of you are donors. We're grateful for that. We couldn't do what we do without the support of listeners like you. If you're able to donate, interested in donating, go to AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. Both of them have a button for donating to the Alliance. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.